This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Our team statement, uh, the past four months have shed a light on the ongoing racial injustices facing our African-American community. Citizens around the country have used their voices and platforms to speak out against these wrongdoings. Over the last few days in our home state of Wisconsin, we've seen the horrendous video of Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times by a police officer in Kenosha and the additional shooting of protesters. Despite the overwhelming plea for change, there has been no action. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. When we take the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort, and hold each other accountable. We hold ourselves to that standard, and in this moment, we are demanding the same from lawmakers and law enforcement. We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. For this to occur, it is imperative for the Wisconsin State Legislature to reconvene after months of inaction and take up meaningful measures to address issues of police accountability, brutality, and criminal justice reform. We encourage all citizens to educate themselves, take peaceful and responsible action, and remember to vote on November 3rd on the behalf of the Milwaukee Bucks. Thank you. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We're recording on Thursday, August 27th, and on Wednesday, August 26th, the Milwaukee Bucks, the NBA team, did not come out of the locker room for Game 5 of their first-round playoffs against the Orlando Magic, and word quickly spread, and we're going to talk about this, but the word spread that there was a boycott, a strike, a walkout. The team was not coming out because of what had happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin over the weekend. There was a lot of anger and sadness and grief over what everyone was seeing I am here today to talk about this with Samantha Shepard, assistant professor of cinema and media studies at Cornell University, author of Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on Screen. You should go back and listen to episode 168 when Amira interviewed her. Dr. Courtney Cox, assistant professor of race and sport in the Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Oregon. You should also go back to episode 133 and listen to Amira talk to Courtney. And then our own um, Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. So Milwaukee Bucks don't come out, game canceled, and then there's dominoes, basically. Rest of NBA, playoffs canceled that day. Uh, I think the next step was the Milwaukee Brewers baseball, which that one still, I'm a little in shock over that. We had multiple MLB games that were canceled. And then we had, what, the WNBA when we had Naomi Osaka say that she would not be playing in the semifinals of whichever tennis tournament is on right now. And I can't remember, but it's not quite the U.S. Open. So it was, I don't know, a stunning three hours, something I don't I think we can call this unprecedented. Amira, I'm going to start with you. What was your initial 
What was your reaction as you were watching all of this unfold? Yeah, I was in a faculty meeting and I saw that the Bucks were not playing, were not participating, were not coming out. And I was like, let me get off this faculty meeting. I was somewhere between like moved and also like two eye emojis looking uh, to see what what was going down, what the deal was. And then very quickly, like I think (laughs) so many of us, was very interested in the language being used in the uh, way that it was very quickly kind of exploding and being applauded as like, they're boycotting something. And I think um, my first reaction was to say, well, no, this is a strike. Um, Boycott is a consumptive resistance. A strike is when you're the laborer and you're withholding labor. Wildcat strike more specifically, which is not with prior authorization or acknowledgement from an organized uh, union head or league. That's what happened. And I thought it was really important to make that kind of rhetorical distinction. My colleague, Abe Kahn, who's a rhetorician, um, had pointed that out. And I thought that it was a really important distinction um, because I think it's really vital that we understand athletes as labor. And and we understand this as a conversation about workers talking about the conditions under which they labor and what happens when the the rage that so many of us feel constantly and the grief and the pain becomes too much and you're just like enough like I don't want to participate in the everyday in the status quo in your entertainment today I'm not doing it. Um, And that, to me, is where I started. That was my initial reaction. Courtney, were you in a faculty meeting? (laughs) What were you doing? Like, what was your initial reaction when you saw what was happening? I was getting text messages from both. And I was really, like, my day kind of shut down. Like, nothing else was going to get done because I just was going to constantly keep scouring. And, like, what Taylor Rooks is saying, like, I'm just kind of following this dynamic from the time they were, like, they're in the locker room. They haven't come out. And then my questions always turn to, like, who's on the roster? And I have been really following, like, George Hill had some really powerful words. And I've been interested during this time, this weird pandemic time, the bubble, the wobble, thinking about, especially within basketball, which is kind of my my jam, who the leaders are may not necessarily be the superstars. It's like, I mean, the people that are reading the most books at the time or the people that really have the ideas. And so I thought about George Hill, but then I thought about Sterling Brown, too, because he had had a direct involvement relationship um, intricately, as, as many players have, but in a very, um, you know, more recent as an NBA player uh, moment and relationship in terms of getting tasered by the police. And so I think about the Bucks specifically, and this being kind of like a really important move, you know, like my mind started going to, well, how will the W react? What the magic, how they respond? And then I started thinking about the other playoff game. There are players and teams where we don't necessarily think about people that are more politically engaged. Amir and I talk about this all the time in terms of, like, in the W, the women have it together. They move with a collective that is really, to me, unprecedented in many ways in terms of getting that many players on board together. They move together across teams. Um, It's not a very individualized thing, which I think it has momentum and really resonates with people more and more. And so on the NBA side, I was really worried about that. I was where I was going back to that conference call and thinking about, you know, there were players that didn't want to play at all and wanted to be fully engaged in social justice and the players that did. And so I was thinking obviously about LeBron um, and thinking about like what this would be. So thinking about Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook as these folks that you kind of do think about having this engagement and, and a relationship, like also some of these players know each other 
really well. And if, you know, Chris Paul being the president um, of the association also matters. And so thinking about even this Lakers Clippers debacle in terms of them being like, we don't want to play the rest of the playoffs and walking out of the meeting is also showing the difference across leagues. And I don't know Major League Baseball as well, so I don't know kind of what those conversations look like. I was just as surprised as you <laughs> to hear from them. Is this about a protest? Is this an individualized one-day thing? But I think individualized, like thinking about Naomi and her decision, I think is really strong in a completely different way um, as an individual that can make a very poignant statement right there versus these team sports. Sam, your initial reactions when you watched all this yesterday? So also not in a faculty meeting. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing that I saw was I instantly went on Twitter just to get a beat on reactions. And for the first time in a long time, turned on the television to see what was supposed to fill, what was going to fill in the space and how they were going to talk about filling in the space. Because not only was it, you know, the reading the corrective of the language of this is a strike, not a boycott, but then also realizing they're using the term boycott for labor reasons, for how this played out contractually, all these things, but trying to figure out, well, how does ESPN and its media industrial machine now fill the space of this conversation for which they are complicit in, <laughs> in the terms of the kinds of ways they have talked about Black resistance? Of course, you know, Stephen A. Smith, you know, going on like, this is so proud, this is such the right thing to do, and then to find out, you know, it was, it was the anniversary of the first time Colin Kaepernick took a knee for him to be then so, so outwardly critical of such a moment and then to frame this moment differently. But then I actually found it really unwatchable, the sort of media space, because that actually wasn't where the work was happening. Um, and so I went back to, to Twitter and to try to oh, figure out what's, okay, so they've walked off, who else is gonna join? And then I was like, the WNBA has been about this life. So I was like, what else are they going to do? Because when they're already there wearing homemade shirts with seven bullet, like, like the, the rawness and the visceral reaction, they are engaged at such a level in and through their play that the removal of their play nuances, but, but does not take us to a new place of the kinds of refusals they were, are already critically engaged in. So then I just was like, oh, I saw that tweet from, you know, Clippers and Lakers don't want to play. And I was like, oh, LeBron's not playing. Nobody's playing. No, you know, that's what I'm thinking. And then I wake up and I get a text, you know, like a little bit while ago saying, oh, you know, everybody's playing. I was like, that's why you can't sleep in the revolution. Um, you really can't go to sleep. Could you sleep? Then it's like, well, the, the lawyer call, your manager call, your friend, your mama who's saying, oh, I really need this. I really, really need this. Like everybody that was like, no, they're awake. They woke up and it became like, guys need this to eat, blah, blah, blah. We got media things. We can, we can, we can make shirts too. Like this, this is what it feels like. As opposed to what was really interesting about the conversation happening around the Bucks calling and saying, these coaches, the NBA has done a, done a lot. I just put my hands in air quotes for those. I realize this is not a video. They've done a lot, but it's like, oh, they have all this political clout that they are actually not using. They are not using their most expensive weapons. And so it made me think about that. And it made me think about 
the kinds of ways in which we have tried to imagine what this sporting refusal looks like. Like cinematically, people are referencing High Flying Bird. Um, I made reference to Haile Grima's Hourglass about what sporting refusal, what the act of not playing means to refuse white labor, white time, white pleasures. That's why I was turning on the TV. I wanted to see how are they gonna fill all of this white time when there are no black bodies. The ways in which, you know, Charles Barkley is sitting there just was not enough. So it was interesting to see those Chris Webber moments. It was interesting to see, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, with his face who walked off and said, nah, I'm not, you know, the check is still gonna hit on the first and the 15th, you can leave. So I was really sort of caught up in all of that. Just my first reactions to, to the news. Wow, so we could go in, feels like a million directions. Let's, can we start with the rhetoric? I believe it was Sam who mentioned that boycott is a safer word when it comes to legal contractual CBA reasons. Let's talk about the importance of word choice, boycott, strike, wildcat strike, walkout. Why does this matter so much, Amira? It matters to remind people that they're workers. It matters to say this is a labor resistance, that they're not just entertainers. They are laborers. They are workers. And that's the distinction between a strike and a boycott. I think that contractually, as Sam pointed to, there is anti-strike language in CBAs, right? There's a cover that boycott gives. But it also points to the kind of slippery slopes that leagues have planted themselves in this position where they leaned all the way into corporate in Black Lives Matter. And so, you know, it makes it a little harder to do some greasy stuff behind the scenes to, to then put a squelch on it, but don't think they're not trying, right? Because we know how power works, we're not naive. It's very telling today, right, that NECA just said, this is not a strike, this is not a boycott, it's a day of action, right? And I think that that is one of those places where I think we can see, because as Sam pointed out, the WNBA is not new to this, they're true to this, but certainly in there, the semantics of what it's called matter a lot when you're playing under a new CBA. I'll toss it to you, Court, but that part about worker versus entertainer, I think, is so fundamental, um, as Sam was saying at the end of that last part. Because the entire setup of this entire moment is just a reflection of like the layers of white supremacy that brought us here in the first place. In the long history of the United States has basically granted space for black people to exist as entertainers, whether it's Nancy Green pretending to be Aunt Jemima and people making a career out of that, whether it's the Fist Jubilee singers were able to earn enough money to buy a whole library on campus in the early 1900s, whether it's early black athletes or singers, et cetera. If you're in a place where you're entertaining, there is a space, there is a pathway for some sort of privileges. And then it's become about policing those privileges. So Jack Johnson, fur coats, cars, white women, too much. Now we're going to discipline you, right? This is the genesis of shut up and dribble. And I think it's really important because it also means that the platform that athletes find themselves standing on is constructed because of white people's racism in the first place. There wouldn't be a platform if black doctors or professors or bank tellers or just any person had the dignity of humanity. But the fact that that's the platform that has been afforded has put athletes continuously in a position to either be an amplifier, a driver of the conversation, or reflective of it. And I think the most 
decisive collective action that we've seen is when there's partnership between that platform and the boots on the ground, because this is not happening in a vacuum. And that to me is the difference between movement building and being a worker who needs a day off because you're tired, because we're all tired. And I think that to me, that is a really fundamental kind of distinctive space. When I'm thinking about the rhetoric, I'm thinking about, yes, splitting hairs contractually around strike boycott day of action or whatever but also fundamentally what is the next tangible goal what is the next step if you're setting this up as a strike then what is the aims what are you withholding your labor for or until what are you trying to amplify what is the ask and i think that you know this is not a sprint it's dreaded endurance running Ugh. but it's a multi-generational fight that's going to continue past our lifetime so for me, it really comes down to, are you using that platform to movement build or even the idea of being in a bubble and this bubble is the space where there's conversations and downtime happening. Like Courtney said, like who's reading books? Who read the most books today? Like we've seen LeBron carrying around Malcolm X's autobiography. Like, did you read a chapter that just hit you a certain way and now you're talking to everybody because you're all in the cafeteria together. But I think that there's a danger also in reframing the bubble as this kind of radicalized space when the bubble is an iteration of capitalism in its discontents. They shouldn't be fucking playing basketball in the first place during a global pandemic. And this like drive to get them still on the courts and put them back in the seat of being entertainers, right, is creating this bubble. And in that space where they have downtime to have this exchange of ideas and to say, oh my God, this bubble is, is like to romanticize it and say, now they have the time. Well, they should have always had the time. But that's pointing to, right, again, the conditions of their labor. And so for me, just to make it full circle, when I think of that and when I think of, and this is the closest I'll ever get from being like, oh, rhetoric, because you know how I, that, that's a lot for me. But I think to me that this is the moment where it's really important because there's a real power in understanding this as a resistance of labor, power in understanding them as workers, but also the possibility of collective organizing beyond the court or the bubble or the wobble and onto the streets. I agree. The words matter, but I'm also thinking about framing through everything that also Sam was saying in terms of how, how it gets picked up onto Sports Center, how it gets mapped on in a particular way. And so I think about it a lot in terms of when you call it a day of action, is it a single day? Are we tired and saying, we're tired of seeing this? This is a bit about this ongoing thing. How do we build this momentum? And some of it is that coalition building, right? There, Florida, because of the precarity of their labor, where Florida was a place they could create this space, because other states were like, absolutely not, right? So, and I think that's also something that's interesting is the language of like what is happening, what it means, and who it's for. Is it for us to have this collective expressing of this trauma, putting pressure on the teams and leagues, and then finally my my general kind of fear buy into Black Lives Matter. We put it on the court. We said we care about Black lives. We let them put it on their jerseys. But like what happens for Adam Silver? Because you can't do the suspension. Because then what's the look? Do they forfeit the, you know, the postponement had to happen because there was corporate intervention into a social movement. Sam, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I have to say that I agree with, with both of you and how you sort of concisely work through the ways in which the rhetoric has, of course, social impact and is also existing within a larger capital capitalistic structure because the thing that is really interesting is that 
boycott as a term itself conjures a kind of imagery also that then aligns it with, of course, you know, the late John Lewis, right? We're, we're getting, we're getting Rosa Parks spirit. We're getting all of this kind of visualization. Also by doing so, it, it divorces this narrative of labor and puts this as black people are con- like, they're eating themselves, like our own consumption. It's like, so this version allows for this to be Selma when it doesn't have to be Selma. That's the thing. And so I think it's just such a way in which we a historically understand the relationship between um, sports and other places in society during particular moments of social foment and change. And so that's why the fact that this has been, you know, I would say like a hurricane downgraded to a day of action, right? From a tropical storm, from a hurricane to a tropical storm to a day of action to it was a small sprinkle. And how people may look back at this is that this is one thing in the midst of many things. And so I think while we think about what it means for, for them to, to use the term boycott, I think it's also to play into a cultural imaginary about the ways in which Black people have collectively moved together, physically moved movements. And I think that's the kind of physicality I think is actually also being, being rendered and conjured in that. And so that movement off the court, that movement where we're sitting on the court, even the referees taking a lap around Disney, all of this kind of physical movement is supposed to just conjure like you're not getting a bridge you're not going to get the police up but we, we want to get this physical movement um because how else will we capture the kinds of choices that are being made when it's also like cbas and we're not playing today game five has just been rescheduled we'll be back at this time um scheduled on your calendars this kind of thing and i think that is something that i find really really interesting about the the athletes who have spoken out and i also wanted to say something about the bubble because i I think it's so really interesting, even the term, the bubble and the wobble, less so much the wobble because I'm thinking about the wobble, but with the bubble, it's like we want to pop it. That's all that I'm thinking about is this false impermeability, right? It's just like we think it is so fragile. We learn that from the testing, right? So it's like it can, oh, it could break down at any, any physical moment. But it's also like we're trying to think about how all the sort of le- levels of diffusion of what is getting in and what is coming out, what is getting in and what is coming out, that it's such an interesting kind of sporting geography that has been created. That it, That's why as a person who studies sports films, it's such a false world that has been created, that it's just like, you know we could just bust it, right? <laughs> you know it's not real, right? It, it, they're working without their families. <laughs> they're working because they have to work. Unlike, what was it, Wimbledon, who said, oh, you know what? We have hazard insurance. So we planned for the pandemic. We got our money back <laughs> for something that did not occur. Everyone here did not. I think that there's something really interesting about the, the the visual imagery, the wording that is used, the rhetoric around the entire thing. But of course, the hurricaning downgrade of 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 this this experience, we're still in a cyclone, so that's still happening. It just may not be happening on the court. Listen, you should have never given me this analogy of summer because <laughs> now I'm about to just listen. Take it. <laughs> this is so that was to me, yes. Because I think that in that moment, we see so many possibilities playing out what we're seeing now, right? And so is it the initial violence? 
do we lose sight of what is compelling the reason for marching in the first place, right? For those of you who are unfamiliar with the history, there was a march planned. Dr. King was there. They didn't get the injunction to be able to go, and they were still being met on the other side of the bridge with full force. And King knew this. Unbeknownst to people marching, he had planned to march right up to them and then turn around. And symbolically, well, I don't really understand what the point was, but he had a point in his head about it, right? It was this moment that became really symbolic. This marching up to and then kneeling and praying and then turning away from. The feeling was it was in place of real action. This was symbolic that was made with behind the scenes conversations that everybody wasn't privy to or engaging with, with the full understanding of things. And of course, we have Bloody Sunday, and then we have the actual continued march, which becomes the most optic moment of it all, where they complete the march, that collective movement, they get there, a crowning speech is made, this is where Ava DuVernay's film ends, and then a lot of people who came to town for that march leave. And who stays largely are people who are SNCC, they're younger, they're saying, we've just endangered people where we've come in and we've brought them to this march and we've done this optically and we've done it for the media and we've done it for the applause and all that's happened and now y'all are gone and we're still here and none of us can register to vote. We're still here, still being lynched. And in that place, there was some actual action that formed early iterations of the Black Panther Party, some more groups of other possibilities that we don't remember, that don't get to exist in our corpus of civil rights, Black power history and long histories of Black freedom struggle. And to me, it's such a useful moment to think through this, right? Because it allows us to think about what does it mean to parse through the optics? What does it mean to parse through the symbolic? What does it mean to understand the way that the symbolic can obfuscate, can stand in place of what happens in its wake? And I think that that's a really useful moment because yesterday, the symbol was everywhere. And it has produced images that will be enduring as we know they become. It's born out of history that I have a healthy dose of skepticism to say, well, what, because of that, does it become harder to talk about or think about what is left behind those frozen moments and gestures? Courtney or Sam, do you want to respond to that specifically? Being a historian, you're right. You've seen, you see historical patterns, both from social movements, but also from moments of sporting resistance. History may redeem you, but the present often doesn't. When you're working with a cultural machine, an apparatus such as the NBA, you also are working with something who has learned to cannibalize the language and the and even the movement of of this kind of change and has said hey this is this is we're about this too but we're also still going to need all of these things from you structurally we are not changing because we don't have to our faces are not out there so there's something really interesting about who is working in the shadows and who is working on the front lines. And then when you look at that, because of course, like you even point out with the narrative of MLK, it's like, and then all of the women who are actually making the movement move are not even on the, not that they're not in the shadows, they are on the front lines. They are, they are everywhere else. And I think that's where 
there's so much, and everybody's trying to remind us, don't forget to talk about the WNBA because not only have, as you said, they are about this, all of these things, but it's the ways in which, and um, Courtney, I would love for you to, to, to speak on this a bit more, but as you said, they are working in a kind of collective, like they are working as a union within a union. And like, it's that kind of unity that they're functioning with that is making it really, really interesting about their actions because I read that some of them were like, oh, I would, I want to play, but other people said, this is really upsetting to me. And that was enough. Like empathy in sport as a kind of womanist practice, I would just love to hear, to hear you talk a bit more about what you see really the lessons that the, the NBA, when they're doing their reading, um, they could continue to, to do. Absolutely. I feel like there is a way they can come to the table and have those disagreements. There's a way that they can think about ways to be whole outside of the game. There's a way that I think a lot about erasure. And I think that Amir has helped me think about it even further. When we say that yesterday was the four year anniversary for Kaepernick, we ignore the 2016 season of the WNBA before that, right? They were penalized and they were fined for it. And we can think about how this league can now pretend and perpetrate as if they've always been about black lives, right? Part of it is they have both demanded as well as decided together what they will do. The WNBA is the case study of white allyship, what that can look like and can be like. Those are our people that know what's going on. They're going to help everyone else get the message. And so I really appreciate, for me, even thinking about the role of academics, of us as scholars, right? When they decide to bring in Kimberly Crenshaw, we know that name. We identify her as an expert. We're also going to bring leadership in. And the Lakers have done that as well, like thinking about bringing in Black scholars that do this work um, in terms of not only, you know, we can sit here and critique them, but what is our role to be in tandem and step with them? And so kind of what I think about a lot in terms of what a team sport can do and what it can look like. Um, and, and I haven't really been able to find another modern, like contemporary case that has the legs that over the past five years, they've continued to build and get better and better and better at this. I want to ask you guys about a question that we tackled on Burn It All Down before everyone went into the bubble. And it was about whether or not playing sports would be a platform or if it would be a distraction. And here we are now today, after everything that happened yesterday, how do we answer that question now? I'm going to throw it to Amira because she was part of that conversation when we had it back in June. I think that debate is historical. It's like, do we boycott or do we have a bigger platform by going to the Olympics? You know, we talked about some of this and that's kind of what I was gesturing to by talking about that platform. If the status quo, if normalcy, if playing is providing cover to a system, window dressing to a system that is harmful and it feels like business as usual is a return to a normal that was and continues to kill us then not playing that refusal, as Sam is talking about, can do specific work. But I think one of the things that we have seen is not all sports have returned, right? It would be really interesting to see if this was during football season. At the same time, we're, in, we're at the end of a long, hot summer. And even with white people suddenly deciding to care, which has given us a social safety net, these corporate responses have given athletes a social safety net. You talk about the risk involved. You talk about the actions that WNBA players were doing, or even, even Colin, et cetera, was doing it without a safety net of this kind of corporate response compelled by the decision to 
not by black we've been saying the same damn thing for years what has shifted what shifted after george floyd was the kind of other empathy it was the other involvement it was the other whatever and when you have the pandemic and that together i think it has created this place where the question of returning to normalcy not just in sports but in schooling in healthcare in all things you know has has really compelled people to think about what that normal looks like, what it contains. But I think for me, and maybe this will kind of veer a little bit into Afro-pessimism, is that even in this moment that is anything but normal, they're still killing us. Even in a time where people are like inside and social distancing, not really outside and da 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 people are still finding ways, you know, to arrest and kill and abuse people at ridiculous numbers. Right. And even within that, and I don't know about how y'all feel, but I think particularly the racialized and sexualized violence against black women, it I feel like has even exploded more in this whatever we're in. And so when you were talking about where are the women when we think about civil rights history, right? It's not just that they're also benignly in the background after organizing all the same things. It means we're talking about people like Diane Nash, right? Who was at home with her and James Bevel's two kids after he was abusing her despite organizing the whole thing so he could march. There's a way in which that very real living through what it means to be a black woman in this country I think comes to bear on the hatred that the WNBA gets constantly. And that has toughened them in a way that it doesn't surprise me sometimes when they take risks because every day it's just the league is too black, it's filled with women and it's too queer. And it invites the most trolling I think that I've seen across all platforms. And it's to me not a surprise that it's really geared at black women. The other kind of new way I'll I'll think about this question is that I feel like in this moment, whether they're playing or not playing, because I think Maya Moore and now Natasha Cloud and Renee Mullen, like people have laid out a blueprint for staying engaged while you're refusing your athletic labor, right? And insisting upon using the full expanse of your platform and not just being valued for your physical abilities, but also your mind. And I think that part of what I'm grappling with is that whether it's business as usual or life in the wobble where you have to have your kid with you because that's <laughs> that's life, right? Like you are still working and doing all this kind of hidden labor or, you know, you're not playing the way in which our bodies are considered by society, are rendered disposable, are unprotected, it's impossible to disentangle abuse that I see directed at the WNBA and their reaction to it from Megan, from Toyin, who's, who would have been 20 today. And I think the most painful thing about this long, hot summer has been the near constant persistence of the massage noir that people are laboring under, whether they're laboring under as athletes or as professors, or as broadcasters, or bank tellers, or sex workers. Maybe that's the way of saying, I think there's now a blueprint for both playing and not playing. And I just don't know what will ever be 
the right, like it seems like distraction or no distraction, taxes, death, and the visceral hatred of Black women seem to be things that have a damn strong staying power. Courtney? I really feel like there is a way to do both. But I also want to go back to thinking about the fact there aren't all the sports yet and what that will mean. And I'm thinking about the Detroit Lions canceling practice um, because that's where they are in terms of the NFL season and what that Again, a very different CBA, very different labor power, way more players, way more things going on. Talk that we're even perpetrating and pretending like that's going to be a thing with fans in the stadium. So when I think about the long, hot summer, I'm thinking about the fall and winter. The very precarity, but also beauty of Blackness is thinking about what the fall will bring. Like you said, this very hyper-visible moment, Black death is still being transmitted to us constantly. And so just like I don't think COVID's going away in the fall, just I think these things will ramp up and move in different ways. And so I think of not only how protesters are now, you know, being killed. So I'm thinking about how these things are ramping up. I'm thinking about how the NFL will be called on. And now with Roger Goodell being like, so maybe I should have listened to that Colin Kaepernick guy. I'm thinking about how unwelcome these kind of half-ass apologies are in the first place that are completely misplaced and not helping us move forward. I want that same energy this fall when you're asking players who are tackling, bleeding all over each other in these spaces, when they stand up, when they have things to say, when they refuse to play, I just want to keep that same energy because it's going to happen. We know, like you said, every sport will get its time because of the, the cyclical way that this happens. It continues to happen. It continues to inflict that trauma. So I'm hoping that other leagues are thinking about this. I know college sports are a whole other thing that we could spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of the precarity of their labor. Um, and and so I'm really thinking about what this fall will tell us and hopefully momentum will take different forms. The highs and lows of this will take different forms for the art in session. I'm really inspired by the way they're finding ways to get together and create different forms of solidarity in different sports. When it comes to thinking about posing that question now about platform or distraction, to me, it's like, oh, it's both. And at the same time, I'm also really upset by that answer because I think it, it allows for all of this space of like not owning the fact that we like, just like this podcast, like burn this whole thing down. Like actually, it's like the problem of the platform because it's not just you. And even, even though it is them, they understand that they're the light, that we're looking at them. And right, and so they can stand on the court and then we can cast our eyes slightly below and see the word Black Lives Matter next to the corporate symbol that has been agreed upon about what their mascot is gonna be and the colors that they can wear. Um, and whether they're the home court or the away court. And it's like, that's also a platform. These platforms are sharing space. And yet it's assumed that they're of equal weight and they are not. And so it's, my problem is that this is, it's not that they don't know. It's not that people just never heard of Black Lives Matter. So we've got to put it, if we, if we, if you look at any Twitter thread, this happened, people, oh, Lakers are not going to play anymore. I was like, don't read the comments because, you know, why play in that arena? Uh, but let me just go scroll through. And it was like, oh, LeBron definitely doesn't want to play. He doesn't want that other ring. Or, oh, definitely, LeBron's definitely going to play. He needs that other ring. And it's like, oh, no, you all are terrible. 
is this what this is for? Is this what's functioning for this? Like, I already know this stuff about, so this is not, I, I'm a LeBron fan, so this is not, but this is sort of like, this person has an entire production unit. Somebody tells him to sh go shut up and dribble. He makes a three-part Showtime documentary. You are the platform. You don't need this. The actual thing that would show what could the NFL do, we're not playing. Who's got next? And that's the thing. What they are showing is how to keep playing, how to keep needing distraction amongst death. We are already in a reality program hosted by literally a sociopath. And so it's sort of like, you think we need the fantasy of sport? You also think we need the fantasy of Black Death for you, visualized on screen all the time. We don't need the fantasies. We, we are saturated with fantasies. And the great thing about NBA entertainment is they have recorded games since the 1970s. They have content. They can just play shit for hours and years on end. You can go back and relive the classics. You can make 30 for 30, volume 17, keep going through. Like there is so much content already there that the idea that this has to be created so that we could be pacified or more importantly, take our eyes away from over 170,000 deaths. I do not want my eyes to be diverted. I, I want to look at that fact. I don't want to look at James Blake's body getting shot. I want to look at the fact of who is moving on the ground. I do not want to go to Brianna Khan. I just want justice for her. I want to abolish it. I want to put the pressure on these colleges and institutions who are bringing back students, making entire towns unsafe, while not at all worried about who is going to actually care for the people who have children in their house because they can't go to school. I do not want to be distracted. I don't want your platform. I want the level playing field that sports can promise. So I would love for them to sit down. Somebody tweeted, Maya Moore, what do you call it? new to stop? stop the ball from bouncing like the game will be there like the game above the game let's start playing that just for like a season or two just a season or two it'll be there it will be there so i i don't i think it is a major distraction i think that it can of course they can leverage all the things they could be doing that beforehand they could have done that they could call they could be doing all of this stuff because they may lose something and that's where I think about the question of what is being sacrificed? Who is willing to sacrifice? And I think everyday people are sacrificing. And I do think that black women are sacrificing the most. I just, I, I, I don't need games on every night. We literally have 95 streaming platforms. I'm good. I have to catch up on so much stuff. I've got entertainment. I want to thank... Dr. Samantha Shepard, Dr. Courtney Cox, and Dr. Amira Rose Davis for this conversation today. Thank you all for being on Burn It All Down. And as always, burn on, not out. NECA, I wanted to ask you, how did you come to an agreement and what was important about that? To be honest, I feel as though what was most important is the solidarity, the unity, the collectiveness of how we've always organized. My role in what I do as president, it's to lay out the options and to really make sure everyone understands the implications of the decisions that we make, especially if we do it together. There was a lot of oscillation back and forth, 
and eventually most teams or players agreed that not playing today was the option. I ride for my players. And so right now we're, we're not just trying to make a statement today, we're trying to also figure out what actionable items can come out of this because we, we stand in solidarity with our brethren. We, right now, there's just so much more that we have on our minds, but with our platform, there's so much more that we feel that we can do to really create some serious change.